Hey, everybody, it is Friday, June 30th, or in other words, Jill, we're halfway there. <laughs> 2023 halfway done. Where do you come up with this, Moshe? <laughs> I was just feeling it. I looked at the date. And uh, by the way, I should mention you're listening to the Mo News podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. But I looked at the date, Friday, June 30th. And I was like, oh, my God, half of 2023 is over. An astute observation, as always. We do math here. Yes, we do. Um, I am Jill Wagner. Thank you for listening. This is the place where we bring you just the facts, some singing, some math. And we read all the news, read between the lines so you don't have to, and uh, bring you a little Bon Jovi on this Friday into a holiday weekend. Jill, what's your plan? Survive. Survive a holiday weekend until <laughs> you can send you'll the little understand. one back to camp. Yes, you'll understand that very soon. Um, on that note, though, some quick housekeeping. We are going to be off on Monday and Tuesday for the holiday, but we will be back on Wednesday. Any big plans on your end? Jill, a little relaxation, a little celebration of democracy. Uh, if you are going to miss those episodes, we've put a couple of extra episodes out this week. So you should have some extra stuff to listen to. Uh, we have a special episode just on affirmative action. We'll discuss it in today's podcast. But we do a deep dive. I did an interview with uh, Sharon McMahon of Sharon Says So on Instagram. I know many of you follow her as well. So that should be available in your queue just before today's episode. You are going to use the word cue in every single episode from here on out. <laughs> Jill, being born in America, I have not gotten to use the word cue like the Brits do because, of course, they queue up and we stand in a line. So I'm making up for years of not being able to use the term. Yes, I did a semester abroad in Australia when I was in college, and uh, I loved the word cue. It was the first time I'd heard it. And with that, let's get to some news right here in America. Uh, a very big day. The Supreme Court strikes down race-based affirmative action at universities. We're going to take a look at the decision, the reaction, and what it could mean for potential college students and universities. The court also ruled on a religious freedom case, giving a win to a postal worker who refused to work on Sunday. And in another courtroom in Florida, Parkland school security officer Scott Peterson was found not guilty over his failure to confront the Parkland gunman. Overseas, France is dealing with its own police brutality case. Protests continue to grip the country after a police officer killed a teen during a traffic stop. In business news, Overstock.com is changing its name to Bed Bath & Beyond. <laughs> we'll explain. And in the world of tennis, the former number one player on the women's side, Caroline Wozniacki, announcing she is coming out of retirement. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, it's a big birthday this weekend for both the IRS and the zip code. It sounds like it's going to be a rager. You wait. we got some surprises <laughs> for you on this day. Plus, it is Friday, what we are watching, reading, and eating on this long weekend. Let's start with the big Supreme Court ruling that will end race-based affirmative action in college admissions. On Thursday, in a 6-3 ruling, the court struck down affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and Harvard, the nation's oldest public and private colleges. But this ruling will apply to higher education institutions across the country. The cases were not exactly the same, but in both, the plaintiffs were students for fair admissions Asian-American students who had said that the admissions policies at both schools discriminated against them in favor of Black, Hispanic, and Native American applicants. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts said that for too long, universities have, quote, 
concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Justice Clarence Thomas, the nation's second black justice, who had long called for an end to affirmative action, wrote separately that the decision, quote, sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, rudderless race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. In a dissent, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, representing the three liberals, wrote that the decision, quote, rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. And then in her own dissenting opinion, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman to serve on the bench, she called the decision, quote, a tragedy for us all. She wrote, deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. So the decision means that the institutions of higher education will need to look for new ways to achieve diverse student bodies. And to that end, John Roberts said that universities can still consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And in response to that, Justice Sotomayor said the supposed recognition that a student can write an essay about race is, quote, nothing but an attempt to put lipstick on a pig. So clearly, most this was getting personal and contentious, even between the justices. This decision, though, not unexpected, given the court's conservative makeup, and the reactions on both sides came in quickly. Yeah, this is a second straight year here that the uh, new 6-3 majority on the conservative court have overturned uh, decisions that they've been upset about for a long time. Last year, Roe v. Wade. This year, affirmative action. As you noted, the reactions did come in quickly on both sides. President Biden spoke shortly after the decision. He also did an interview. He did vow that this wouldn't be the last word on affirmative action. We need a new path forward, a path consistent with a law that protects diversity and expands opportunity. So today I want to offer some guidance to our nation's colleges as they review their admission systems after today's decision. Guidance that is consistent with today's decision. They should not abandon, let me say this again, they should not abandon their commitment to ensure student bodies of diverse backgrounds and experience that reflect all of America. Jill, as he was walking out, he was asked by one of the reporters uh, what he makes of the court, uh, if the court's going rogue here. And he made a point, unscripted, of pausing as he was leaving the uh, room, saying, this is not a normal court uh, before walking out. Multiple former presidents chiming in here, including former President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, who both put out statements, the former president writing that affirmative action allowed generations of students like Michelle and me to prove we belonged. Now it's up to all of us to give young people the opportunities they deserve. Meanwhile, former President Trump and other conservatives hailed the decision Trump writing on his social media platform. People with extraordinary ability and everything else necessary for success, including the future greatness for our country, are finally being rewarded we're all going back to being merit-based. That's the way it should be. Going back to the decisions here, Jill, uh, they were a fascinating read. Clearly, many of the justices wanting to uh, put their opinions, their personal thoughts, uh, their interpretations on paper for perpetuity here. So there were six opinions. Typically, you have a majority opinion and a dissenting opinion. In this case, there was a majority opinion written by the chief justice. Then you had concurring opinions by Clarence Thomas, by Neil Gorsuch, by Brett Kavanaugh each of them writing concurring opinions in addition to the majority opinion. Then you had not one but two dissents, the Sotomayor 
and Jackson uh, dissents that you mentioned earlier. Everyone saying their piece here, and it got personal at times. Now, they will cite each other in decisions, uh, but in these decisions, if you read through them, and we went through a bit of it on the Instagram account and discussed it on the other breaking news podcast that you can listen to today, they were very specific. Clarence Thomas saying, Sonia Sotomayor says the following. That is no basis in fact. Sotomayor multiple times goes after Thomas in her dissent, saying that his arguments have no merit, that at other points, there's no evidence for what he's saying. Uh, at one point, she says, Thomas belies reality. Uh, then you have Thomas, back to Thomas's opinion, he calls out Kentanji Jackson for saying all outcomes in this world are due to race as far as you're concerned. The summary of, of Thomas's opinion basically is everyone needs to get over it and we need to move on here. Again, especially notable given that he is black himself. And you noted earlier, Jill, uh, Justice Roberts writing that you can still mention race in a college essay. And that's part of a section where he says that race doesn't need to be eliminated altogether. It just can't be a plus one that universities use to give you preferential treatment. You know, there's a lot of talk in the decisions about zero sum that basically, as far as the conservatives are concerned, if you're giving preferential treatment to Latinos and blacks, well, that comes at the expense of other races, right? In this case, whites and Asians. Uh, the liberals disagreeing with that, saying that uh, they need to correct for historical wrongs here. And this goes against all the progress that's been made in previous years. There's also notably an exception for the military here. The service academies asked for an exception. This came from top military and national security leaders. The majority here agreeing that uh, the service academies related to the military can continue to use race and diversity as part of their admissions process, arguing that it's uh, national defense, uh, that the military needs to remain diverse. And so they made an exception there. Uh, the liberals, of course, saying, well, if diversity is important to the military and its national security, what about the rest of the country? And so you saw this back and forth play out over, Jill, more than 230 pages of opinions. How many of those pages did you read, Moshe? I tried to get through most of them. I'll admit I didn't get through most of the Gorsuch concurring opinion, but I give myself like, you know, good, good half, 100, 110, 120. And that's why they pay you the big bucks. Um, okay, as for the impact here, uh, some higher education experts say that at least in the short term, it is likely that at elite institutions across the country, that the student population will become a bit whiter and more Asian and less black and less Latino. Now, there are nine states that already banned the consideration of race when it comes to admissions at public universities. There are California, Michigan, Washington State, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Nebraska, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. And looking at the numbers, they did see a drop in enrollment in the state's leading public universities among Black and Latino students after affirmative action was banned in those states. Now, as for where the public stands on this, Back in 2020, California voters rejected a ballot measure that would have brought back affirmative action. Yeah, it was actually their third attempt back in 96. That's when California, on a, on a proposition measure, California voters banned affirmative action. There were three attempts, including the one you mentioned in 2020, to bring it back, and it was rejected every time. Jill, that does jive with uh, national opinion. If you look at multiple recent polls, including a Pew Research Center poll, uh, just last week that found that half of Americans disapprove of considerations of an applicant's race. When you break it down, uh, basically the only uh, group that was still a proponent of affirmative action was African-Americans. So what now as far as these universities? Well, 
looking at the examples in those nine states, how have universities there been trying to get a diverse student body without considering race? They've been looking at the zip code where the applicant is from, looking at the crime rate or the poverty rate in that zip code. Also using family income as one way uh, to try to get at diversity. The president of Columbia University was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying that this will take up to five years for universities to really figure out how to recalibrate how they do admissions decisions. Uh, in California, Jill, where uh, there's been no affirmative action for the better part of 25 years, uh, they've been using 13 different points to try to achieve diversity, though we should note that uh, in the case of California, that that still means that uh, they've seen, as far as the numbers are concerned, that they've seen uh, Black and Latino student populations at half the rate of the overall state population. So certainly room for improvement there and uh, uh, some creative thinking required by these universities across the country. And Jill, among the big questions we've been getting is how many universities were actually using affirmative action? It's not all of them. In fact, it's been about 40%. So you've had a number of state institutions, about 20% of state institutions across the country using it. Uh, And then where it's really been used are these highly selective institutions, the private universities. Uh, And so that's the case there. So this really impacts just under half of universities in the country. Moshe, I'm curious what you were hearing from people over on the Instagram account. Predictably divided. You know, some people are very upset, very worried about the ramifications of the end of this for employment opportunities for Latinos and Blacks, you know, who might not be able to get into certain institutions now. At the same time, some people saying, uh, agreeing with the majority, saying it's about time that affirmative action was never meant to be permanent. In fact, you saw it in the opinions from the justices. If you go back to the 2003 Supreme Court decision that upheld affirmative action at the time, Sandra Day O'Connor and uh, Anthony Kennedy at the time wrote that Affirmative action should be done in about 25 years. We foresee a time in 25 years when we won't need this anymore. Well, that 25 years would have been 2028. So we're here in 2023. So their 25 years turned out to be about 20 years. Uh, And so that's an argument that you saw some people make saying, like, how long should this go? Uh, This has been around for 50 years. It was never meant to be permanent. Again, those are the proponents, the people who are celebratory here. Uh, And at the same time, you know, some people who are very concerned about just generally speaking, the direction of the court. And so what can I say? The, uh, the opinions there appear to be representative of, of where the nation is, you know, really a, a 55-45 situation. And this wasn't the Supreme Court's only decision on Thursday. The court also ruled in favor of an evangelical Christian mail carrier who had refused to work on Sundays. So he claimed that the Postal Service didn't do enough to accommodate his request not to work on Sunday based on his religious belief that it is a day of worship and rest. He released a statement after the ruling saying, quote, I hope this decision allows others to be able to maintain their convictions without living in fear of losing their jobs because of what they believe. Yeah, so his case now returns to lower courts for further litigation. The justices here clarified a law from the 1970s that made it illegal for employers to discriminate based on religion, requiring that they accommodate religious beliefs of workers as long as accommodation does not impose undue hardship on the employer's business. Jill, as people listen to uh, this podcast on Friday, uh, we uh, presume this is the last day of the session. A couple big cases coming down, including uh, the court ruling on Joe Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness plan, which I know many of you have been curious about. Decisions start to pop around 10 a.m. Eastern time. And really quickly, I was watching your Instagram Live, which is now a podcast that you did with um, Sharon McMahon of uh, Sharon Says So. And the expectation here is that the court 
will rule that President Biden did not have the authority to pause student loans. If you look at some of their precedents recently and where they've been going directionally, that's the assumption, though this court has given us some surprises this term, Jill, so we got to stay tuned. Okay, time now for the speed read. We begin with another courtroom, this one in Florida from NBC News. A former school security officer was found not guilty Thursday over a failure to confront the gunman who massacred 17 people at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida back in 2018. Scott Peterson was a Broward County Sheriff's deputy. He worked as a resource officer at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Peterson, who is 60, was the only other person at the school with a gun when the shooter opened fire. He was taken into custody after a 15-month investigation that showed that he, quote, refused to investigate the source of the gunshots, retreated during the active shooting while victims were being shot, and directed other law enforcement who arrived on scene to remain 500 feet away from the building. That is according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. He was charged in 2019 with seven counts of neglect of a child and three counts of culpable negligence and one count of perjury. As that not guilty unanimous decision was read Thursday, you could see him breaking down in tears and and just physically shaking. So, Jill, the charges, if he had been convicted, would have carried 96 and a half years in state prison. Uh, Recall Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in the shooting. 17 students, teachers and staff were killed in that shooting. That was Valentine's Day 2018. I remember it well. It was actually my first day executive producing the evening news at CBS. Uh, Quite a day to start. We were live for several hours that day. Just a tragedy. As far as Peterson, though, he did an interview with the Today Show about three months after that shooting. And during that conversation, he apologized to the families and said at the time, it wasn't fear that kept him from rushing into the school, but it was chaos, miscommunication, and his assumption that the shots were being fired by a sniper. He admitted in the interview, I didn't get it right, but it wasn't because of some, oh, I don't want to go in the building. Oh, I don't want to face someone in there. It wasn't like that at all. He claimed the interview. That was part of his defense here. And and clearly the jury listened to that as they found him not guilty here. And Jill, we should note inside the courtroom on Thursday, there were a number of family members of the uh, students who were killed. Uh, They could be seen shaking their heads as this verdict was read. All right, let's head overseas from Axios. Protests and unrest are rocking parts of France after the deadly police shooting of a 17-year-old driver of Algerian and Moroccan descent during a traffic stop in a Paris suburb earlier this week. A prosecutor announced Thursday that the officer who shot and killed Nahel M. will be formally investigated for voluntary homicide. The victim's last name is not being released. Authorities also said they deployed about 40,000 police officers to help quell the unrest after some demonstrators set cars and public buildings on fire for a second day. Activists and analysts say that they are protesting against police brutality and systemic racism in France. They say police often act with impunity and heavy-handed tactics and are driven in part by embedded systemic racism in the police system and within France itself, particularly against Black and Arab people. Yeah, you definitely see some parallels uh, as far as the accusations there in terms of what you see here in the States. So what happened here? The French prosecutor and police say they attempted to pull over Nahel for several traffic violations on Tuesday. The teen initially drove through a red light to avoid police, but was eventually stopped by traffic, at which point the officers approached the vehicle. A video of the shooting shows an officer then firing his weapon as Nahel drove away from them. Now, one of the key issues here is the video contradicts earlier reports by French media that the teen had driven his vehicle into the officers, which is not apparent in the video. 
the officer is saying that he shot Nahel because he feared for his and the public safety. The teen was known to authorities for previously violating traffic stop orders. But the French prosecutor is saying that in their initial investigation, they've concluded that the conditions for the legal use of the weapon were not met. At least three people this year, Jill, have been killed by French police during traffic stops. And according to Reuters, the majority of people killed by police in traffic stops over the course of the past six years were either black or of Arab origin. So uh, this continues to be an issue. This is not the first time, and definitely not the last time, we'll see this sort of rioting in certain parts of France as uh, especially communities, North Africans who have uh, immigrated to France or from immigrant families uh, feel like they're discriminated against in the country. From the Wall Street Journal, the Chinese spy balloon that floated over the United States earlier this year was loaded with American-made equipment that enabled it to collect photos, videos, and other information, U.S. officials tell the paper. The report comes after several defense and intelligence agencies, along with the FBI, analyzed the debris retrieved after the U.S. military shot down that balloon nearly five months ago. Crazy that that was five months ago already, Moshe. Jill, it was January. (laughs) We're, we're going into July now. That's right. We're halfway there, uh, as you mentioned at the top. OK, the debris analysis found large amounts of commercially available U.S. gear, some of it for sale online, interspersed with Chinese sensors and other equipment. These findings are just the latest evidence that the balloon was used for spying, not weather monitoring, as Chinese officials claim. Jill, they're still trying to make weather happen. They're trying to make fetch happen. And no one, I, I can't believe it. The Chinese are literally still using that statement, even though it's pretty clear at this point. Come on. Come on, China. Anyway, back to the journal story, which was fascinating that there was American gear uh, aboard this balloon. Uh, they don't know yet whether any of that gear was sold illicitly to China, but said determining whether any of it came from illegal trade was a topic of serious concern among officials uh, because some items like chips are forbidden to sell to certain markets. And now we have the next question, which is, will there be a big display of this? Parts of the U.S. military, including the Defense Intelligence Agency, want to put the balloon debris on display for the public to see. It's something they've done before with Iranian weapons, but so far, the White House has decided not to share publicly its findings on the balloon. The concern among many, just as we finally had that meeting where the U.S. Secretary of State was in Beijing, is they don't want to provoke a strong reaction from the Chinese. And if we embarrass the Chinese publicly, that that could have other ramifications. At the same time, the Chinese, as I mentioned, still trying to make fetch happen. Uh, They've accused the U.S. of hyping the balloon, saying, come on, it was all about the weather. From CNN Business, Overstock.com, one of the biggest names in e-commerce, is ditching its name for something just as recognizable bed, bath, and beyond. Jill, I've heard of them. My question is, will they take my coupons? I still have like a whole stack of 20% offs. That is the question, actually. Um, The change, though, comes following a judge's approval of Overstock's purchase of the bankrupt brand's name, domain, and loyalty program assets earlier this week for more than $21 million. However, the acquisition does not include the bed, bath, and beyond brick and mortar stores, which are all closing, Overstock's CEO saying, quote, combining the strengths of the Overstock operational model and the Bed, Bath & Beyond brand will create a powerful synergy. Is it even an acquisition if you don't use the word synergy? No, you must. You must. But again, not addressing my question, which is what about my 20% off (laughs) coupons? So, so far, shoppers... Use them now. (laughs) 
Jill, I think it's time to finally throw them away. So shoppers in Canada will see the changes first. Overstock plans to relaunch their website over across the border there, and then several weeks later, bring a new shopping experience to the U.S. Overstock's loyalty program, Club O, is also being changed to Welcome Rewards, which was the name of Bed Bath & Beyond's program. And it comes at a time where overstock sales could certainly use a lift. Their numbers have been sagging in the last few quarters, uh, and that's across the board. You see the same thing happening over at Wayfair. Both of them have been experiencing a slowdown in furniture and home goods sales after that huge pandemic-induced boom in 2020-2021. And then finally, when the supply chain recovered and they got all this inventory, uh, Americans were like, yeah, we're not into that stuff anymore. We're traveling and we're willing to pay a lot of money to go places again. Meanwhile, the Bye Bye Baby chain, a former sister retailer of Bed Bath & Beyond, that is being sold off in a separate sales process. It is considered the most attractive part of the retailer's assets. Yeah, Jill, we got news late Thursday that a small New Jersey retailer bought the IP of Bye Bye Baby, but they're actually selling the stores and the assets themselves separately. Again, this is all a plan to make as much money as possible off the sale of these two properties. From ESPN, three years after retiring from professional tennis, former world number one Caroline Wozniacki announced that she would be returning to the sport in a first-person essay for Vogue. The 32-year-old said she started to hit again after her second child was born in October, and it made her realize how much she missed the sport. She said, quote, It's hard to say why or what changed, but when my dad, who's her longtime coach, saw me practice that day and said, it looks like you're enjoying it more. That was exactly how I felt. I was relaxed and having fun. And somehow that let me see everything more clearly. Wozniacki saying that she is targeting the Canadian Open in Montreal in August as her official return and uh, hopes to play the U.S. Open. And she joins a growing list of moms competing on the tour. Fellow former number ones, Angelique Kerber and Naomi Osaka are both expected to return from maternity leave next year. Uh, Wozniacki talks about this in her essay as well. She wrote, I've talked with a lot of women who gave up on their own dreams because they wanted to be with their families. But somewhere deep down, they have this yearning to do something they're passionate about. And I want to show those women that maybe there's a way. It's certainly not easy to find the right balance. And I'm so lucky to have a supportive husband and supportive parents and the help of a nanny. But I think it's possible. I want to prove that to myself and to those women. You can have both. You can be thrilled with your family and with everything at home and still have her career and be great at it. There was another quote that really stood out to me. She also wrote, most of the men on tour don't have to retire to have a family. They can play through. She says, Roger Federer, he had four children while playing. Novak Djokovic has two. Rafa Nadal has a child. Andy Murray has four. For the women, though, she says it's mostly been either or. And I'd like to be part of changing this. She pointed to Kim Clijsters and Serena Williams as having already shown what it takes to have a child and return to the tour. It is not easy by any means, but it is possible. It's a point that Serena Williams also made when she was going to retire. I love this trend of people retiring, whether it be Tom Brady or Caroline Wozniacki, um, and then coming back. But it is a, a fascinating dichotomy. And, and it, like our discussion yesterday on the podcast, I think it's an important one to be having. All right, now time for On This Day in History, really on this weekend in history, Jill, since we won't be back till Wednesday. Uh, this weekend in 1862, President Lincoln signed a measure into law effectively creating the modern IRS. 
the nation needed money to fund the Civil War at the time. And so they instituted taxes, income taxes. And here we have it all these years later, IRS. Though uh, for most of you, you don't have to worry about that for at least another, what's that, nine months. All right, also turning 60 today, also something that you kind of assume has always been around, but wasn't. Uh, 1963, 60 years ago today, the U.S. Postal Service created the zip code. And now for something that existed at one point and most of us no longer need, the Walkman. On this day in 1979, Sony began selling the Walkman, a portable cassette player. Uh, Jill, I still remember the moment when I was in, I think it was fourth grade when I got my first Walkman. It felt amazing to be able to take my music on the go. And that was a time, Jill, when I was still hitting play record on my boombox to listen to songs on the radio and make my own mixes. You know, this is the pre-digital era when you had to kind of wait for the song to come on the radio and then run quickly to the boombox to hit record so you could have it <laughs> on tape for yourself. And the best is that you would hand write the names of all the songs on the on your mixtape. Yes. All right. And a couple movies that came out this weekend that we're still watching after all these days. On this day, 52 years ago, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory starring Gene Wilder premiered in theaters. And then fast forward to 1995, uh, this weekend in history, 28 years ago, the phrase, Houston, we have a problem, went viral in kind of the pre-viral times as Apollo 13 premiered in theaters. And Moshe, apparently that was not the actual quote. Slightly off. Right. They actually said, Jim Lovell will say, okay, Houston, we've had a problem. Uh, I think they cleaned it up. They tried to tighten it a little bit for the movie. Okay, and it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. All right, Moshe, what are you watching? So, Jill, apparently there's another Indiana Jones film. The first one came out in 1981. This should be the last one, Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny. It's in theaters. Still stars Harrison Ford with a fedora. Uh, there's a new director, James Mangold, who's taken over from Steven Spielberg for this final uh, film. Apparently, the 2008 film, there's a 2008 sequel that I didn't see that was pretty underwhelming. Uh, but I'm going to go check out, say goodbye to Indy. What are you watching? Okay, there is a five-part series on Netflix. It's called Muscles and Mayhem, an unauthorized story of American gladiators. My husband is watching it now. He said it's amazing, and I think I'm going to try it out. American, I remember American gladiators. Gladiator ready, gladiator ready. That was some good watching back there in the 90s. It's funny because we were talking about it, and he said, I guarantee Moshe used to watch American Gladiators and is yeah, my, very my into My brother this. and I would watch it. We're only a year apart. He's a year younger than me. And I remember like we'd set up the living room or the family room with a bunch of pillows and, and basically kill each other with pillows imitating what we're seeing on American Gladiator. Okay, what are you reading this weekend? Jill, there's a new book out on the battle between Amazon and Walmart. Uh, so kind of pretty recent history here. It's a book by a guy named Jason Del Rey, who's a Mo News community member. Uh, he reached out. Uh, and so I'm reading that and I'll be interviewing him later today uh, for the pod. And that'll be coming out in the coming weeks. What's on your reading list? I am much less ambitious. I'm just going to go with an article. And it is uh, in the free press, Barry Weiss's publication. It's by Paula Froelich. It's called The Fall of Megan and Harry Inc., she writes, the couple's popularity has plummeted because they shirked the one thing Americans truly care about, hard work. And in it, she talks a little bit about their Spotify deal and how Megan wasn't actually doing all of the interviews. Interesting stuff. Yeah, there's been a lot of pieces this week. Uh, we linked to a piece from the Wall Street Journal in the newsletter this week that also went in depth on 
a Harry and Meghan's troubled ride when it comes to the media or the building of their attempted media empire the last couple of years. Okay, my favorite part of Cheers to the Freaking Weekend. What are we eating? Jill, I don't know if people caught this headline this week, but if you're looking for a job, Van Leeuwen Ice Cream, to celebrate its 15th anniversary, is hiring for the following position. Lead Ice Cream Taster. Apparently, this role, this person will work in the research and development team to talk about their products, discuss potential new flavors, and eat a lot of ice cream. So this isn't necessarily what I, I mean. I'm certainly going to be eating ice cream this weekend. I'm an ice cream fiend. But uh, I imagine they've had tons of applications for this. This is, I mean, maybe it's a publicity stunt. But frankly, lead ice cream taster, that sounds amazing. I actually don't know many people who eat more ice cream than you do. <laughs> you and Alex. Anyone who follows you guys on the Instagram account, can definitely see that uh, there is a love of ice cream there. Second to none, Jill. Second to none. I usually skip dessert at a restaurant. I'll look at the dessert menu, but unless something is really calling my name, I'm like, let's go just find the nearest ice cream joint and hit it. <laughs> Jill, what are you doing this weekend? Um, okay, so I tried this week the um, viral cookie baked oatmeal. And when I say viral, I mean it went viral in 2022. Uh, but I did have a bunch of... Jill, it eventually catches up to Jill somewhere after Facebook. So it, yeah, it, it goes, goes viral TikTok, on TikTok. Instagram, about- YouTube, <laughs> Facebook, and then somehow Jill finds it somewhere. in the Newsday. She reads it in Newsday. So I have, I've been meaning to try it. And I had a bunch of bananas that were about to go bad. So I was just like, this is it. Today is the day. Basically, it's bananas, oats, egg, milk, a little salt, baking soda, and some chocolate chips. And I have to admit, it is delicious. It tastes kind of like healthy banana bread. Uh, If anyone is interested, I can post the recipe on my Instagram, Jill R. Wagner. Okay, that is a wrap on a very long week. We want to thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Have a wonderful, safe weekend, everybody. See you Wednesday. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.